This is the time of our meeting on Sunday mornings where we open God's Word. I'd ask you to turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we come this morning to our final sermon in this epistle. Uh, We've spent nine months in this uh, short epistle, going verse by verse, and today we will conclude that. Our text this morning will be the last three verses, 12 through 14 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Before I start that, I would like to just, uh, I've gotten some questions about last uh, Sunday's message. Uh, You look back up at verse 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And the context of 1 Peter has been persecution, and no doubt Um, Satan is looking for opportunities to further discourage these believers. He's going to use persecutors. He's going to use people who, the government, in Nero's, this was Nero's day of persecution, to harm these believers and discourage these believers. Satan was looking for more of those opportunities, getting to somehow make these believers um, turn away from their faith, from trusting God. So the context is certainly persecution, but the, t- the question came up to me in, in different ways and was asked in different ways, but can a true believer be demon-possessed? That was the gist of the questions. Can a true believer be inhabited or spatially indwelt by Satan or a demon? There are some people who are in the spiritual warfare movement within Christendom who would say, oh yes, believers can be inhabited by and possessed by the devil. But to that I would say the Bible does not support that view at all. Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. There are no examples in the Bible of that at all where Satan ever inhabits or possesses a Christian. No believer can be invaded, no believer can be invaded by the devil. Uh, You don't ever see anybody in the New Testament rebuking or binding or casting out demons of believers. That is foreign to the New Testament, and we're never instructed to do that. It's not part of the one another's, cast demons out of one another. That's not there. Christ and the apostles did that, but they did that to unbelievers. And they were the ones who were demon-possessed. They were the ones that had the space to be possessed by a demon. We don't. Listen to this, Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness... Think about that. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are not in Satan's kingdom. Listen to this, Romans 8, 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer 
through him, through Christ. 1 John 2.13, because you have overcome the evil one. We have overcome in Christ. 1 John 4.4, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So, demon possession cannot happen to a true believer. But Satan can certainly influence us and seek to influence us. As I said to you last week, he is not omnipresent and he is not omniscient, meaning he is not everywhere. He cannot be everywhere. He has demons, yes, that are everywhere, but Satan is not like that. It's not like that. He is not God. And he may not know what I am thinking, but he knows how I think. He's observed me, he's observed you, and he knows what things to put in my path that will certainly influence my thinking. He knows how I'm wired by the way I act and the things I do. That he puts those things out there that can have an influence on me. So yes, I can be demon influenced in that sense. But he can't invade me. He can't do that. He can't he can entice me with temptations, no doubt. He, remember I told you last week, it's a truth war that we're in. He wants to put false ideas in your mind. He wants to put lies about God in your mind. He wants to put lies about truth in your mind. That is the battle we face, is in our mind and how we think, and that is why we're told over and over again to renew our minds. We're told over and over again to guard our minds, to guard our hearts, same thing. Because that's where Satan wants to get to us. He wants you to believe doctrines of demons. He wants you to spread doctrines of demons. And I'm only told to resist the devil. I'm given a great command in James 4, 7, because this is what Satan wants to do. He does not want me to submit to God. James 4, 7 says, submit to God. Submitting to God and living under the lordship of Christ is essential if you're going to resist the devil. That's what James 4, 7 says. Submit to God, resist the devil. I really can't resist very well if I'm not in submission to Christ. And that is what Satan wants to do. He wants me not to submit to God. He wants me to submit to him. He wants me to submit to myself or to others or to world philosophies or whatever. And every day I have to get up and I have to put my life on that altar. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. And I have to say, God, I want today to submit my life to God. I want to live under the Lordship of Christ. That is a daily decision I have to make every morning when I get out of bed. Today, God, May I submit to you. I'm going to have all kinds of things thrown at me throughout this day. All kinds of temptations. That's the world I live in. And God, I want to be able to resist. And I know the key to that is to be in submission to you. And furthermore, you must really believe, verse 11, to him be dominion forever and ever. You see that, 511? You must believe that Christ, God, is dominant, not the devil. You must believe that. So much false teaching about the devil. 
that he has all this power that's equal to God and that God is frustrated by the devil and the, that God, the devil just goes around frustrating God's plans and God is powerless to do anything about it. That is not true. That makes the devil sovereign, not God. You must know that the devil is God's devil. He uses the devil, yes, to accomplish his purposes, but he does not have dominion. Only God has dominion, domination. That's the word. So you must have a biblical view of our adversary. You must recognize that he has power, yes, but it's only the power that's been allowed by God. So that's what we saw last time. And then Peter is not finished yet because now he has some closing words at the end of this epistle. He's going to sort of give us a summary here at the end. He's going to give us some, uh, greet, he's going to ex- some typical expressions of affection here at the end. And greetings at the end. These are pretty typical. He does say some things, though, I think, that sort of summarize this epistle for us. And I'm going to take you now through those verses. You see um, in verses 12 through 14, let me read those. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. I like the way he says it was brief letter. We have taken nine months to read his brief letter. But it was brief. It doesn't take that long to actually sit down and read this. You know that, but compared to other New Testament leaders, uh, letters, this was somewhat brief. We're going to start Second Peter next week, and that's even briefer. Uh, but uh, we'll look at that next time. But here we are in First Peter 5, verse 12, and you see the word... I have written to you briefly, and notice he says at the beginning, through Silvanus. Silvanus is another way to spell Silas, another name for Silas, and maybe a Roman name for Silas. He was a Roman citizen, but he was converted under the ministry, most likely, of the Apostle Paul. If you have an NIV version, it does say Silas. That's how most commentators believe. It's the Silas you read about that's constantly accompanying Paul. Was in the Philippian jail with Paul. This is that Silas that we're talking about here. You see him mentioned in 1 Thess 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 1.19. But notice he's called here a faithful brother. A faithful brother. If you turn to, hold your hand here, turn to Acts 15. I just think this is one of the, a, a neat passage about Silas. Um, just to show this faithful brother in action. Uh, Acts chapter 15, this is the, called the Jerusalem Council. In the early church, as the church was beginning, there was a, a, a great issue, a big issue between Gentiles becoming Christians and Jews becoming Christians. And you didn't want two separate churches. You didn't want a Jewish church and a Gentile church. 
You wanted a, 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 an understanding that we're all one in Christ, but that was slow coming in the early days of the church because there were many Jews who could not understand how a Gentile who was not circumcised, who a Gentile who had never participated in the rituals of Judaism could possibly become a Christian. They said, no, you've got to, you've got to keep the, the, the law. You've got to, you've, you've got to um, be circumcised. You've got to, the law of Moses matters. All of those things that they were accustomed to and used to in Judaism, they were trying to impose on the Gentiles. And Paul, a, a missionary now to the Gentile world, did not want to take that baggage with him in the gospel. In fact, he says that's not part of the gospel. That's what this council in Acts chapter 15 is about. You see how serious that is? You see how serious that issue is? I mean, people still try, try to do that today, don't they? They try to take away the exclusivity of Christ and add works and all kinds of things to the gospel. Well, that was the debate of Acts chapter 15. Well, they come up with a letter and they decide that Gentiles do not need to become Jews. Gentiles do not need to adhere to the circumcision or anything else like that. That was the decision of that council that was made up of uh, the, the leaders in Jerusalem, in, in, in Jerusalem, which, which Peter was certainly there. So a letter was written, and you notice in 1522, in 15, Acts 15, verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas, excuse me, called Barasbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. What they were going to do is carry the letter, to carry the letter to let all the churches know, the Gentile churches know. I'm sure the Gentiles were excited about this, excited about this. In 1532 through 34, Judas and Silas also being, down to 32 and 34, and Judas and Silas also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message this is Judas and Silas, who you say we're told here was a prophet, and were sent away from the brethren in peace. Um, and I just want to emphasize, I guess, what I can say about Silas was he was a man who was a faithful brother. He was a man who was concerned for the church. He was a man who we see uh, accompanying the apostle Paul Peter calls him faithful brother. In other words, he was using his gifts in the church. And I just want to say this, and, and, and to the men of this church and to the men listening uh, this morning, uh, if you're a Christian man, the question I have for you, would you be characterized as a faithful brother? Would you be characterized as one who uses your gifts in the church? Would that be your reputation? I think you should look at something like that and say, God, I want to be that man. I want to be that guy. For the past few years, we've been taking a group of men to South Florida to a conference. The elders and a few others have accompanied us on this. And it's called Courageous Churchmen. I love that title. Courageous Churchmen. And the instruction there is great. They teach things about every facet of ministry in the local church. Um, but I love the idea of courageous churchmen, men who will take a stand for Christ, men who love the church. You follow me? Men who love the church because they love Christ 
and they have a desire to see the church be healthy, a desire to see the church make an impact on the world. And that's the prayer of every pastor, of all the elders in all the churches. I, talked to, I listened to a guy speak from Poland the other day who's starting a church in, or has started, been starting a church in Poland, and that's his biggest prayer. God raise up godly men, faithful men. Listen, God has not called women to lead the church. He's not called women to lead the home. He's called men to do that. So I challenge you, men. If you're not a faithful brother, become one. Become one. Love Christ and love his church. So important. So very important. That is the distinction of a healthy church when you have godly men who step up to be courageous churchmen, to borrow the term. So, before I leave this particular part of the verse, there are some people that think when you see the word through Silas, see that in verse 12, through Silas, some people think, well, that means Silas was the one who wrote the letter. In other words, he was the secretary for Peter, which would have been a common thing to do. Paul had uh, Tertius, and, and there were others, you know, others who would do the same thing, to help edit something as you wrote it. Through, Sylvan, through Sylvanus, this letter has come to you. That is very possible. It's very possible. There are, there are many who think that is true. That would explain, some say, that would explain why the Greek is so perfect in the book of Peter. Because Peter's a fisherman, there's no way he knew Greek that well, this perfectly. He could speak it, yes, but to write it the way it's written, this is a, really the Greek is incredible in the book of First Peter. And so to explain that, they say, well, Silvanus must have been the one who was editing and doing the writing for the Apostle Peter. And that is a possibility. But the other, the other um, view on this is that that statement through simply means he was a courier. He was a courier. He, he delivered the letter. And the role of a courier was sometimes more than just taking it and, and like a mail uh, carrier or something. It would be more like they would go there, read it, and explain things in it. They were that kind of a trusted individual. So it's very possible that that's what we're, is meant by through Sylvanus. Now, he could have been the secretary and the courier. I don't know. We don't know those things for sure, but I'm just once again showing you the giftness of this man and his availability so that Peter could rest, rest, rest well at night knowing this letter's in good hands with a faithful brother to take it and make sure it gets delivered. And Peter says, I wrote it. He says that. He does say that in verse 12. I have written. I have written it. That means it has apostolic authority. That means it's written by an apostle inspired by God. And therefore, you and I are under the authority of this letter. That's what's important about it. It's the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. We submit to that teaching. That's what the Bible is, the New Testament is. Secondly, the application. How does, this, how does this letter apply? He does that in verse 12 also at the end of the verse. He says, exhorting and testifying. I have written, I have written these things, he says, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He says, I have um, everything I've written to you is true. He says that. Nothing but the truth. He says it's about the grace of God. This is what this letter has been about. He's giving you a summary of what this whole letter has been about. It's about the grace of God. 
And he's saying, now you stand firm in it, you be immovable, you plant your feet deep. And when the wind starts blowing, the winds of persecution start blowing, you keep standing firm. When the winds of false doctrine start blowing, you stand firm. You stand firm in it. What a way to end this letter, to tell them you stand firm in what I have written to you. Don't be wavering. You hold on to these truths that I have written about to you. He says, I've been telling you about grace. Grace. I've been telling you about the grace of God. I don't know if you have a definition of grace in your mind, but grace means favor. Grace means undeserved favor, yes. But let's take it one step further. Grace is favor shown to those who deserve the exact opposite. You follow me? Grace is favor shown to those who deserve the exact opposite. That kind of opens the word up a little bit. We deserve judgment and hell, but God has given us the opposite of that, favor. He's given us favor. Favor is like a disposition. That's the disposition of God towards us. You wonder, what's he going to be like to come towards it? No, he's gracious towards you. That's a disposition. What's it like to be in his presence? Well, he's gracious to you. What's he, is he approachable? He's gracious to you. The throne of grace. He acts favorably towards us. That's his attitude towards us. We were once enemies, and now he shows favor. I love Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Think about that word lavish. You don't use that word very often. Lavished on you. It means it's, it's when something is poured onto you with, without limits. It's, it's when God floods you with something. He floods you with his grace. And I've t- he's taught us several facets of this grace throughout the letter of 1 first, of first Peter. Let me take you back to the first chapter, and I'm going to show you some different facets of grace. I kind of went through, you just kind of go through and find all the sections where he talks about grace, and this is kind of the summary that Peter wants you to stand firm in. So as you walk away from this letter after studying it for these nine months, these are the things he wants to leave us with and tell us to stand firm in them. Listen, you've got to understand something about grace that, that we have a desperate need for it. We, we really need grace. I don't want justice. I don't want justice. I want grace. I have a fallen condition just like you. Every part of my life has been affected by sin. We walk, we walk in the futility of our minds. We walk in darkness, we're darkened in our understanding, Ephesians 2. Our hearts have been hardened, we're blind. Each of us has turned to his own way. That is our condition. We have a condition that needs grace. We have a condition that we can't get out of ourselves. Listen to this verse in Isaiah 59, verse 2. Our iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Think about that. Your sin has made a separation between you and God. You're over here, God's over there, and there's just nothing but a big chasm in between that you can't get over. Listen to this, 5.10 of Romans, we are God's enemies. 
prior to your salvation, you are an enemy of God. Colossians 1.21, we're alienated from God, hostile in our minds toward God. That's what our hearts are like. And if I don't have divine intervention somehow, unless God somehow invades this hardened, darkened, uh, walking in futility, person, mind, if God does not do something, I'm hopeless. If God does not do something to awaken me and bring me to life, I'm dead. And that's what grace is. If I don't have divine intervention, I just choose my own way, I live my own way, I set my own rules, I don't have anything to do with the rules that God has set. And we saw in Leviticus this morning, hostile towards the law of God. That is what I'm like unless God does something to intervene. I can't get myself out of the darkness. I can't get myself out of the lostness. And that's why we see saving grace, a grace that saves in 1 Peter 1. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1. You remember these verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Notice, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God but the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That's salvation by grace right there. You were chosen before the foundation of the world. You did not deserve it. You did nothing to earn it, to work for it. God chose you before the foundation of the world. He set his foreknowledge, means he set his love on you in eternity past. He sent his son into the world to save you. He, he died on a cross. God chose everything in his son. He did everything in his son that you need to be saved. And then he opened your heart to believe. And that's when you have faith. He opened your heart to believe that message. And because of that, go down to verse 3. He caused, who, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Who did that? God caused that. God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we have a future hope now. We have a future hope to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. That's salvation. I have this past salvation where I was justified. I, put, God, I came to faith in Christ. I trusted in him. God, God did all of that work in me, and he continues to work in me for future salvation as well, future grace. He reserves a place in heaven for me. Man, I tell you, that's a great package. And the way you stand firm in this grace, this salvation grace, is in verse 13. One thirteen, you see it? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. A confident expectation. He saved me. 
He saved me. He is continually saving me, and he will save me in the future. Salvation when he comes again. And secondly, there's a second grace that Peter's taught us about in this. It's a grace that sanctifies us. He gives the first command after 30 verses in, in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, and here's the point. Since you have been saved apart from any works, God's saving grace has done that work in you. It doesn't mean now that you live however you want to live. It doesn't mean you just do whatever you want to do. This is the sanctifying grace that he gives to us. The grace that makes us set apart. The grace that makes us like Christ. Notice in verse 14 of 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's our purpose. We've been saved for that purpose. The grace of God has appeared, Titus says, for this purpose, that we might deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It's Titus 2.11. So that's what we, this grace I'm talking about right now is a grace that helps us to grow in Christ-likeness. Because I can't do verse 15 on my own I can't be holy like the holy one who called me I can't do that I can't I can't make that happen in my life I need reliance on the spirit of God that indwells me to do that I need God's grace in me working to make that happen Christ lives in me Galatians 2:20 says he lives in me to do that work in me Look down at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy. These are sanctification verses. These are verses that I need sanctifying grace if I'm going to obey them. When God gives commands to us as believers, he gives us the power to do it. That's grace. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander... Like newborn babes crave or long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, that's salvation. If you've experienced saving grace, then crave, the, like newborn babes crave the pure milk of the word so you can grow. See, the Christian life is not instantaneous, it's lifelong. Um, it's a process, and we need God's grace if we're going to do it. We need to be like infants looking for nourishment. A baby that cries for milk. Only milk will satisfy, nothing else. And that's what we have to see. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We've got to see God's word as the nourishment our souls need to grow. We need to crave it. Ask God to give you that craving. If you don't have that craving, ask God to give you that craving. Listen, don't, don't settle for uh, other things. Don't, settle for, uh, let, don't let your appetite be in for other things. That, that squelch, you know how you can ruin your dinner before you have it by eating a dessert first sometimes, you know? Don't, don't do that. Don't do that here when it comes to nourishment of God's word. Don't, don't develop an appetite for something else other than God's word. 
And then another, another grace that we saw from Peter, we see in verses, uh, back in 1 Peter, it's, it has to do with suffering. Uh, grace when you're suffering. Grace when you're under persecution. Grace when you're suffering unjustly. We all experience that, unjust suffering. Someone does something to us that is unjust, that we did not deserve, or they treat us uh, wrongly or uh, hurt us in some way. We saw that over and over in this letter. Suffering, my friends, is normal to the Christian life. You just got to get used to that. Paul says to, Pete, uh, to Timothy, he says, Timothy, suffer hardship. Suffer hardship. Like the, um, like the soldier who suffers hardship. Like the, the athlete in his discipline suffers hardship. Like the farmer um, in his work and his not always getting to see the results of his labors suffer hardship. For, you know, I told you that we've said this several times throughout this letter, our study of this, but there's been persecution. There's persecution throughout the world. For the last 200 years, the church in America has enjoyed a relative peace from persecution. I don't think the days ahead are going to be like that. I think we're going to look more normal in the days ahead. Normal is what the rest of the world has been experiencing because Jesus said it like this, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. I think as Christ and our message becomes more and more clear, it's going to become more and more offensive to our culture. They will not stand for our message. They will not stand for our values. They will not stand for our morals. They will not stand for the fact that we don't support some of their redefining of, human, of hum, what a man and a woman is or what marriage is. They will not stand for us to speak against those things. And so I don't believe it's going to get easier. I believe it's going to get harder and we're going to need grace. Notice 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is there if you sin or harshly treated you endure it with patience? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor, or this finds the word grace. That's what favor means, grace. This finds grace with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ Jesus also suffered for you, leaving you an example, you follow in his steps. Go down to chapter 4, verse 19. He says in verse 19, Therefore, those who also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I may never see justice in this life. I may never get vengeance in this life. It's not my job to get vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. I just entrust the unjustness of the treatment that I experience at times. I just entrust my soul to God. He will make things right. He will make all the evils right. Right, He will bring about true justice one day. Notice in chapter 4, verse 10, we talk about grace regarding spiritual gifts. This is something else Peter talked about in verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, if you have a speaking gift, depend on the grace of God to use it. That's what he's saying. If you have a serving gift, depend on the strength which God supplies to do it. The grace that God supplies to use that gift in the church. You ask God to give you the grace to serve the body. 
Listen, the church is important to God. It's the bride of Christ, and he has put us all together and given us all gifts that we would use them to build up his body. Every Christian has a gift. Every Christian needs to depend on the grace of God to be using that gift. And notice, uh, finally, verse 10 of chapter 5, the grace that sustains us. The grace that sustains us. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I, I think everybody should memorize that verse. That is a tremendous verse. That is a, a verse that speaks of God's sustaining grace. I don't know what trial you're going through right now, what difficulty you're experiencing right now. You need God's sustaining grace to strengthen, to perfect, to confirm, to strengthen and establish you, to confirm the genuineness of your faith, to strengthen you and to undergird you and give you power, to cause your roots to go down deep. So you see, he comes to the end of chapter, he comes to the end of the letter and he says, stand firm in these things. Don't let your feet come out from under you. Plant them deeply. Plant them deeply. And then finally in 13 and 14, he just gives some closing affectionate statements. The, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Just real quick, interpretive challenge with she who is in Babylon. Who are we talking about? Only two possibilities. Either it's a female individual that's not named, which makes no sense why he would not name. He names women in other places, in other books. Why, if, it's a, if it's an individual, why isn't that person named? Why, he's assuming they know who the she is. That would be, that's why I don't think this is an individual. Um, I believe it's because of the, uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's in the feminine, therefore the bride of, it could be the bride of Christ. It could be the church. This seems to be more typical of how letters ended between churches that were sent to other churches. The church, speaking of the church, that would be a, uh, a female article, feminine article uh, as well. Uh, the church in Babylon, Babylon was a, a known place. However, it was a place at this particular time that was, un nobody lived there, it was destroyed. And there was another Babylon in Egypt, which was just a military outpost, and there was no Christian presence there. So I don't think the Babylon here is the Babylon as far as a literal city. I think we're talking about a Babylon like um, the Babylon of the Old Testament, which was that city that was anti-God. I think in this context, Peter is writing from telling the, all the churches that she, the church in Rome, what most commentators believe, a reference to Rome, because Rome at this point is the most anti-God place. And to disguise the fact there's a church there, he just calls it she who is in Babylon. That is how most commentators interpret that difficult statement. Um, it's one, she is chosen together with you, just takes us back to what we read earlier in the first part. All believers are chosen. Uh, that church sends you greetings. That church who is chosen just like you sends you greetings. Um, I think that's neat how Doug prayed for other churches this morning. There are other churches, others around our city and the world and nation who, who are called out. I think we should always be aware of that, that we need to pray for other churches. 
not just us. And then he says, so does my son, son Mark, not his physical son, of course, but his spiritual son. Mark, this is John Mark. This is the one who went on the first missionary journey with Paul, ended up having to go back because he, he couldn't make it. It was too rigorous. He had to go back. Uh, therefore, Paul would not take him on the second missionary journey. And it was caused a hassle between him and Barnabas, between Paul and Barnabas. But the point is, the guy's matured. The guy in Peter's later years becomes a close associate of Peter, probably stayed close to him and um, assisted him in many ways. And here he is, matured, more faithful, and says he too sends his affections. And then he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Okay, let's see here. That is not prescriptive. I just want you to know that. That is not a command. That is something certainly done in the context of the church in that period. They would kiss each other in a term of affection, of unity, something they would do sometimes even around the Lord's table. Um, it was called other places a holy kiss. There was nothing you know, sinful about it, nothing like that. Uh, I do know, reading a little bit of the history of that, it was something the Western church stopped doing altogether the 13th century because it started having negative connotations to some people on the outside looking in. But the point is, this is not something that's prescriptive. A handshake will do, a hug will do, that's appropriate. Uh, a pat on the back will do. Uh, but that's the idea, just an expression of our unity. And then he says this, and I just close with this, peace, peace be to you, who all who are in Christ. Um, only a Christian can know that peace. Only a Christian can know the peace that Peter is saying there. Unless you're, if you're not at peace with God, you cannot know the peace of God. If you are not at peace with God through relationship with Jesus Christ, then you cannot know the peace that comes from God. That's why he says, who are in Christ. You must be in Christ. That's what the communion table is. The communion table reminds us that Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace offering between us and God. He is the one that satisfied the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God in our place. He is the one that took the penalty of sin uh, for us. Um, he is the one that was the peace offering that made peace possible between us and God. And that's why Peter ends it this way. Uh, all who are in Christ Jesus, all who are in Christ Jesus, he says, peace be to you. Peace be to you. That's First Peter, folks. Father, thank you. Thank you for this tremendous letter. Thank you for this tremendous truths that we've seen on grace. We're people in this room this morning, God, that are in great need of grace. As we grow in the Christian life, we realize more and more how much we need grace. We see the depth of our depravity and the depth of our sinfulness, and we see hidden motives and hidden attitudes, God, that we didn't think were there, but they still come out at times and reminds us over and over how much we need your grace. Thank you for your grace. May we stand firm in it. May we not let anyone rob us of that. Come and try to say you've got to add something to salvation, the gospel. Come and say that you've got to depend on yourself and you've got to be pragmatic and you've got to do it, work it out all yourself. God, may we be those who are dependent on the grace of God. 
We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.